Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Megan Hanlon and welcome to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering and much more. So if you're ready, sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. Okay, so I'm joined today by Dr. Ivana Mills, a leading researcher in the field of immunometabolism, currently based in the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in affiliation with the Harvard Medical School and previously of Trinity College Dublin and GSK. So Ivana's current research focuses on the crosstalk between adipose tissue and the immune system to discover new targets for obesity-related diseases. Um, and so, yeah, I'm delighted to be able to chat to you today, Ivana. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. Not at all. Delighted to be here. Um, so I suppose I'll start right in and I kind of want to go back and, and ask kind of what you were like in school or where this kind of passion for science began. Was it when you were in school or did you have other careers in mind at that time? Well, yes and no. So both my parents are scientists. So dad's an immunologist and mom is a neuroscientist. So I was exposed to, I guess, the idea of science from a very young age. But I also had other dreams. So my uncle is a vet. My grandfather was a vet. And I was completely obsessed with animals from the youngest age. So I was absolutely adamant that I was going to become a vet. And that was my goal until the age of 18, I guess. So all the way through school, that was like, got to get A's in the exams, got to get the best results I can possibly do in the leaving cert so that I could go to study veterinary medicine. And I guess some doubts started to trickle into my mind whether that was the right decision after transition year. I did a placement in a small animal practice and I, I guess I didn't love it as much as I thought I would. There was just aspects of it that I found a little bit monotonous. But anyway, I kind of I had put so much effort in at that point to achieve that goal that I kind of felt compelled to continue. And eventually I did get into veterinary medicine and I was really excited and I went there, it was in UCD and I started and, you know, honestly week one in, I realized this wasn't the right decision for me. And I, you know, powered through for another month or so. And eventually I realized that this just wasn't feeling right. I wasn't enjoying the course as much as I wanted to. I knew that the parts of it that I were enjoying were the science. Um, mm. So eventually I decided to drop out of uh, veterinary after six weeks, which was a shock to myself and a lot of other people because I'd kind of focused on this for so, so long. Mm. So then eventually I managed to get into Trinity uh, Science that same year. So I had missed about three weeks of the start of science. Um, and yeah, I was delighted with the move. I loved the new course and everything felt yeah right again. And I, I think I also had a special place for Trinity in my heart, having been there a lot as a child as well. So yeah, I've always been inclined to have a great interest in science in particular, but it wasn't the, a completely straightforward path to get there to begin with, at least. God, well, I mean, at least it's good you didn't have to take the year out then, you know, after. I know, I, I know. I think this happens to a lot of people, you know, yeah. starting off in a course, because I suppose you probably had ideas of what it was going to be, and maybe the reality turned out a bit different. Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate. So I ended up going through kind of a, a 
backdoor route of getting into Trinity. I don't know if this is something that I should be disclosing. (laughs) So there was um, vacancies in geriatric nursing, shockingly, uh, in Trinity. So yeah, I ended up applying for that. And once I was in the Trinity system, I could transfer internally to science. So I was technically in geriatric nursing for one week and then internally to science. So there was no vacancies in science when I started. So I couldn't just immediately go into that course. Um, So you had to do kind of a, a backdoor route in, but it worked out. Yeah, I really didn't want to take a year out after the leaving cert. I don't know. I was just worried I'd lose momentum but uh, you know that was completely out of my hands all I knew is that I needed to get out of veterinary it wasn't suiting me at all and yeah I guess mentally I really struggled when I was doing that course everything Mm. about it just yeah didn't didn't suit me at all and like when you kind of decided firstly to you know make the move from veterinary was it straightforward that you were like I really want to do science then kind of yeah no no no. I was never going to do anything else so when I was filling out the CAO um science was second everywhere so it was veterinary wasn't the only option to do veterinary was in UCD but then beyond that it was science trinity science UCD science I don't know Galway everywhere else and then uh, all the way up to whatever number of courses we could select. I can't even remember, 10 or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, it was science. So it was never like I was going to become a pianist or anything. It was <laughs> always going to be in the framework of science. And I was just hoping that it would be Trinity science. And yeah, that's the way it all worked out, thankfully. And I, I kind of tend to ask people on this podcast, you know, was there a particular kind of mentor or teacher maybe in the earlier days who kind of spurred you on and, and maybe made you realize your talent or, or was enthusiastic about science? I suppose in your case it might be a bit different because I know but your parents are scientists, so I don't know if that's the answer to the question. Um, well, obviously my parents were delighted that I was pursuing science and dad in particular that my interest fell to immunology. Um, And yeah, I mean, they absolutely have had an impact on my uh, trajectory, of course. But I think, I mean, I could never fail to mention Luke O'Neill. He was my PhD mentor. I also did my undergrad rotation with him and had him for lectures as well. And he's also like a family friend. So I I had known him on a personal level. And obviously, he's a larger than life personality, but also an incredible scientist. So I think he has had a massive impact on every stage of my career so far. I also did an undergraduate uh, rotation with Ashling Dunn while she was still in dad's lab, but she was, sorry, Kingston's lab, but she was transitioning towards independence at that point. So she was my mentor in, in that lab and she was phenomenal. And she definitely had a big, big impact on me. I remember the project actually went quite well and it ended up being published and I was doing, giving a talk at ISI um, as an undergraduate and I was petrified. <laughs> and she was just like, yes, yeah, so supportive, both scientifically and personally. And yeah, she's also someone who really, you know, made me believe in myself from an um, experimental standpoint, if nothing else. So yeah, I have to mention her also. Great. And and then within kind of the uh, science, and I think you did biochemistry in Trinity in the end, or biochemistry with immunology. Yeah, yeah uh, biochemistry. How, how is that? Did you enjoy the course? And then kind of near the end of the course, were you always like, I want to do a PhD or, or how did that yeah. transition happen? 
I loved the course. I remember, yeah, from the very, very start, I was interested in immunology. So we had a little tiny section. I may have been called like infection and immunity or something in second year. And that was the, the course that struck my interest the most. And again, having been exposed to conversations around the dinner table, I had an idea of the field a little bit. Um, uh, so yeah, I selected that in third year and I suppose it wasn't, it wasn't the best start. I remember we, we had these problem tutorials where it was kind of a, a real life application of science. I think the first one we did might've been, um, flow cytometry plots, trying to interpret those. And I remember getting everything the wrong way around. So instead of like double positive, I had double negative and, I remember getting, I think it was 41% in that exam. And I am like an uber nerd. I, I would, I've never failed an exam in my life apart from grade one recorder. And um, I was devastated by this. And I was, I was just like, oh gosh, if this is my you know, future in immunology, I should hang up the coat now. But um, thankfully it improved from there on. Um, but I always loved immunology. I'm just fascinated by the immune system, especially cell signaling in particular. So um, innate immunology and the signaling side of things were really my passion. And that's how I ended up doing my undergraduate placement in Luke's lab. And that's when he kind of was just beginning to work on immunometabolism. And I was working with a postdoc called Gillian Tanhill, who, who ended up being the first author on uh, the Succinate Nature paper. And mm. I was working on kind of a, a different aspect of her project, um, succinate related uh, and immunometabolism related. And I completely fell in love with that subject. So I really didn't want to leave that field and I really wanted to pursue things in Luke's lab. I ended up getting an offer in Cambridge, UK, and it was a decision between staying in Luke's lab for a PhD or going there. And I don't know, my gut instinct ended up just being to stay there, to stay with the mentor that I really liked with the work that I really liked. So yeah, I was always planning on doing a PhD as soon as I got exposed to the lab and realized how much I loved it. And I think that that's actually like, it's interesting that you were, uh, had the, the kind of decision to stay with the mentor in you and, and, and the kind of college in you and, and to go, because I think often in academia, we're kind of pushed to go, you know? Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. If you love the work and you love yeah. kind of the, the, people that you're working with there's there's no reason to well to yes struggle. yes I completely agree there there is always the kind of pressure of you shouldn't stay in the familiar the easy option I guess and I definitely recommend anyone who's pursuing a career in science especially the academic uh, side of things to go abroad for sure it just didn't feel like the right time for me the the Cambridge program was phenomenal and I'm sure it would have been a great experience also, but the, their, their system was a year of rotations and then a three-year PhD in the lab that you select. And I just didn't, it felt to me like that year of rotation was almost a bit of a waste. I yeah. think for someone who maybe hadn't decided what particular area they were interested in or wanted to get more exposure to different techniques or meet different PIs. It's a fantastic opportunity and it's a great system. But I was just, I, I don't know, I felt so confident and compelled by the field of immunometabolism that I just didn't want to waste that year uh, doing these rotations. And there was also no labs at the time that were doing the type of work that Luke mm -hmm. was doing. So yeah, I, I almost felt this sense of guilt not 
picking Cambridge for the reason you mentioned that, you know, this is an opportunity to go abroad and to study in, in a fantastic university. But it just, yeah, I guess having made the mistake with veterinary, I learned to follow my gut a little bit more. Yeah, no, definitely. I know I think that like I, I was kind of similar in that I stayed on after my fourth year with uh, my now supervisor, so I can completely empathise with that. Um, and so I suppose it's a good point to kind of bring in the field of immunometabolism. Could you kind of give me an overview of that field or kind of why people study this and why it's interesting? And then I suppose bringing in the research that you've, you've kind of done in, in that area. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose a decade ago or so now, people realized that metabolites were not just these intermediates that were involved in the production of ATP or the energy sensors and source of the cell, but actually they had discrete signaling capacity. So uh, Luke and others, many, many others at this point have demonstrated that signaling uh, intermediates, for example, Krebs cycle intermediates can drive particular signaling uh, processes in different cell types. So our lab was focused on macrophages, which are a really important innate immune cell. So they're one of the first line of defense following invasion with a pathogen. Um, and they different, they uh, regulate their metabolism in different ways depending on the stimulus they encounter. And this can result in the upregulation and downregulation of different pathways, in particular cytokine production being one example. Um, and macrophages aren't the only immune cell that are regulated in this way. Many immune cells, in fact, all immune cells, have some sort of immunometabolomic link to them and their signaling capacity. Um, so yeah, my PhD was focused on macrophages, which is the cell type that Luke works on. And we found that succinate is a really important pro-inflammatory metabolite. And the enzyme that produces it, succinate dehydrogenase, is actually a key regulator of macrophage polarization. So the regulation of this enzyme can determine whether uh, a macrophage is going to produce inflammatory intermediates such as interleukin-1-beta or anti-inflammatory agents such as IL-10. Um, and then I went on still with Luke um, and in collaboration with Lynn, who was another PhD student in Luke's lab, to look at another signaling intermediate, uh, idaconate, which is another metabolite that can regulate macrophage biology. But it, unlike succinate, is actually a very potent anti-inflammatory metabolite. Because so I actually work on macrophages um, within within the field of rheumatoid arthritis, and and I think within kind of a autoimmune kind of setting, just for people who might be aware, you know, yeah. we really want to ramp down that inflammation. So kind Absolutely. of the. The metabolites that you've spoke of there, succinate being a pro-inflammatory, mm -hmm. uh, itaconate being a, an anti-inflammatory. Can we strike a balance between those two? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually interesting from a rheumatoid point of view, succinate's been found in the synovial fluid of rheumatoid or arthritis patients. So before I guess the understanding that it was a pro-inflammatory metabolite, people were thinking about using that as a biomarker, which could another benefit of looking at this field of immunometabolism. So absolutely, idaconate actually interesting regulates SDH, so succinate dehydrogenase. So it's almost like a break on the immune system. So there are obviously con uh, contexts where we want to dampen down inflammation, so the likes of sepsis or autoimmune diseases, as you mentioned. And on the other hand, it's sometimes helpful to boost your immune system to help fight pathogens, but also in the context of, say, tumor immunology, where we want to, you know, kill tumor-infected cells. So 
definitely, I think this understanding from a basic standpoint, how metabolism is regulating cells is really interesting. But yes, from a clinical standpoint, if we can use these endogenously produced metabolites to influence the um, activity of the cells, it could end up being very important clinically. And we're starting slowly to see some translational uh, aspects of uh, immunometabolism, but still in its infancy for now. Uh, and like you know targeting metabolism because it's such a key process you know to every cell in the body yeah. Did, will this have any kind of side effects or, or unwanted effects or how do we kind of uh, account for that well one thing i think that's really important and interesting about metabolism is that there is so much redundancy in the system cells are incredibly flexible if you starve them of one nutrient source they'll find a way to work off of other cell uh, nutrient sources so you deprive cells of glucose they can burn fat uh, for example so there is a lot of flexibility so it's unlikely that you're you're going to completely kill a cell by depriving it of one metabolite because they can find ways around that but yes it's definitely important to think of context specificity and if if we can in some way um, engage some sort of cell type specificity that would be especially helpful for example IRG1, so immunoresponsive gene 1, which is the gene that codes for the protein to produce itoconate, is selectively expressed in macrophages. So that would be a very nice way to turn on this process or turn it off, for example, specifically in that cell type. But definitely when you think about things like tumor cells, they also have um, a dysregulated uh, metabolic profile. So that's actually not uh, light years away from what an activated immune cell looks like. So you're going to have to be extremely careful how you manipulate those processes or else you could end up making things worse. So that's definitely something from a clinical standpoint that we probably don't fully understand how we can make this selective right now. And within kind of like, you know, your day-to-day research in the lab or when you were doing your PhD, because I know you're on, you've moved on to kind of other work now, but in your PhD, when you were kind of studying these processes and studying these metabolites, kind of give me an insight into what experiments you would run or or how you'd go about doing that um, and what cells kind of you looked at. So we worked uh, mainly on primary bone marrow derived macrophages. So These are progenitor cells that we take from the bone marrow of mice, and then we will culture them in vitro using MCSF, so to produce macrophages from these progenitor cells. And they were our bread and butter. We would use them routinely in the lab. And then for looking at protein um, expression of cytokines in particular, we would be doing things like ELISAs, Western blots for expression. We'd be doing QPCRs. And then we were lucky to have a number of really great collaborators. So When it came to things like measuring metabolites, we did not have the capacity to do that in-house, but we collaborated with a group in in Cambridge. Uh, Christian Freza is the senior PI there. So he really helped us out with all the metabolite analysis. And then Mike Murphy has been like my second mentor. He has been the mitochondrial guru to whip me and Luke in shape whenever we were saying something (laughs) that didn't make any sense from a bioenergetic standpoint and he collaborated and helped us a lot in particular with the the succinate and the idoconite papers he was kind of absolutely a, a key collaborator and then we also had collaborators in the Broad Institute here in Boston who helped us a lot with the succinate paper and initially with Luke with a lot of the metabolite work as well so we had I suppose the more basic uh, methodology set up to do routinely in the lab, but then yeah, it was our really our collaborations that helped us get those projects to the next level. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, that's one thing that maybe might be a misconception of, you know, how people view scientists uh, as kind of, you know, in your lab coats and at your lab bench alone, but there's so much collaboration yeah, that, that, absolutely. that goes on. Um, and so did you enjoy your PhD and, and how was it with Luke as a mentor? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely loved my PhD. So I had three failed PhD projects before I ended up with my final you know, thesis project. So I think the first 18 months or so were really tough, especially because I had just come from um, my placement with Ashton Dunn, where I had a weird experience of everything just working. Like I, it was my first project and it all just worked. And I was like, the science is great. This is so easy. And then I went to Luke's lab and nothing worked. And I started on a project I wrote an IRC uh, grant that I was, you know, anticipating working on for the duration of my PhD. And when I joined the lab, Luke said he wanted me to work on a completely different project. He wanted me to work on BMAL1 regulation of AMP kinase. So we're talking circadian rhythm and AMP kinase, mm. two very challenging things to work on together. And I worked on that for maybe six months and the data was incredibly inconsistent and I was so frustrated and I was like, what am I doing wrong? Why is nothing working? And eventually I switched project um, to a more immunometabolism based project. So it was kind of getting into the field that I wanted to be in, but a slightly different context. I was looking at the inflammasome and how succinate may regulate that. Um, and I had a whole heap of really cool data showing that succinate seemed to activate the inflammasome, but only specifically when you prime cells with the TLR7-8 agonist. And I worked on that for maybe maybe eight months or so. And finally, we ran out of our vial of the uh, or, or A4-8 compound, it was called, that uh, was the TLR7-8 agonist. And we got a new one and I couldn't reproduce any of my own data. Oh. And then it turned out that uh, the compound I had been using for the whole time was actually so old that it had partially degraded. So I wasn't using the compound I thought I was using. And we did some mass spec to identify that it actually lost an amine group and was a completely different compound and I couldn't reproduce anything with the legitimate or eight for eight compound so that got put to bed as well um, so, and then I worked on microRNAs for a while that also didn't go so well and then eventually I ended up landing on uh, the succinate hydrogenase project which uh, thankfully went uh, much much better than the prior three projects Oh my God. So your kind of whole PhD was done in like two years, essentially. Yeah, it was in the end. I, I had my transfer viva like six months before my PhD viva, thankfully, because otherwise okay. I would have had like nothing to discuss. Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a tough start, but I guess it made me more resilient. And uh, I suppose I learned a lot from it, but it wasn't a very enjoyable first 18 months at least. Oh my God. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine, especially having come from, as you said, an experience where everything was working. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was tough, but Luke to his credit, I'm an incredibly pessimistic person as well and, and always assume I'm doing something wrong. And Luke is very optimistic and would always, you know, try and find the nuggets of, of good data amongst the crap and would keep my spirits up. So I had, yeah, I was very grateful for his support throughout the, the highs and the lows. I, I think you need that, though, because I think as, yeah. you know, as, as scientists, we're kind of very self-critical. So you kind of Absolutely. need that person there to be like, no, it's not you. It's, it's the compound. <laughs> <laughs> Project number three, still not working. 
God, I can't imagine. And so, and so after your PhD, then you moved over and you started a postdoc in GSK. And was that yeah. kind of like, I know that's industry kind of pharma. So yeah. was that a different setting or how, how was that? Yeah. So Luke was going on sabbatical for a year to GSK and they asked him to bring three postdocs with him. So he asked me if I wanted to go, but I still had nine months of my PhD left. And for some reason, they specifically wanted postdocs. Um, so I kind of rushed to finish my PhD and then went over with him um, along with two others from the lab. And it was it was an interesting experience. There were aspects of it that were absolutely fantastic. Some of the resources they had were phenomenal. Some of the people were great to work with, but there was a lot of red tape that I suppose we're not used to in academia. We're, we have so much freedom that we don't even realize it. And there were things there that I just couldn't understand. It just felt very inefficient at times because there was so much red tape and so countless countless meetings that felt uh, slightly unnecessary to me but yeah overall it was a really positive experience and it was really nice to get an insight uh, to what working in industry was like and I guess we were kind of at a privileged position of still technically being Trinity employees so we had some degree of of freedom to what we were working on and you know I met some incredible people that I still keep in contact with so it was a a very positive experience in general, but definitely different to what we've been used to as academics. And like in the labs there, like did you have your own kind of space in the lab or were they kind of big, open? Yeah, open so that was something I wasn't so fond of. They had a system of hot desking. So you would come in. The idea was that you would sit beside someone new every day and, you know, engage in conversation and meet new contacts, et cetera, et cetera. But in practice, it's, you just don't want to come into work and start chatting with people like every single day. It's just not productive. So I was immediately in the bad books when I started there because I set up camp in one desk and I still stuck to that desk for the entire year. So I'm an early bird. So I would always have, you know, the choice of whatever desk yeah. I want I came in and I just gravitated there. I just didn't want to spend time even thinking about where am I going to sit today? Who am I going to sit beside? What are we going to talk about? So I would always go to that same spot and my manager would come down and be like you know gotta try this hot testing thing a bit better <laughs> um and then in the lab we kind of we did have our own kind of section but we were meant to kind of have you know a western bodding bay and eliza section and then the qpcr machine was five floors up so <laughs> you had to run up and down those stairs i got very fit when i worked in gsa <laughs> um, to run a qpcr for example and yeah, so there was a lot of jumping around the place. It wasn't like, this is your lab bench, this is your desk, go do your work and on your mm. way. It was, it was more open plan and everyone kind of mixed and matched a little bit more. And, and so from GSK then, I know you've now moved over to Boston. So I suppose, how was that move over to the US? And then also kind of talk to me a little bit about your research that you're, you're doing there. Yeah, so... I moved to Boston in April 2017, so I've been here just over three years now, and I am working with a fantastic mentor called Edward Shushani. He actually did his PhD in Mike Murphy's lab, so we met at a conference in Germany, I don't even know what year it was in, maybe 2015 or 16, and we got along very well, and I knew him through Mike as well, so... 
um, I met him at a, again at a conference when I was in GSK actually, and he told me he had just got a PI position in, in Harvard and was wondering if I was interested in doing a postdoc. So I moved over here and yeah, started working in a completely different field. So he was interested and still is in thermogenesis. So brown fat, which is a different type of fat than what most people I suppose are used to, as opposed to the visceral abdominal fat that we think of in a negative context. Brown fat is this different specialized type of fat that has a unique capacity to burn fat and burn glucose and burn calories in general to produce heat. So it's really important, particularly in infants who can't shiver to maintain body temperature. So there's been a lot of interest therapeutically because of the obesity epidemic in, in understanding new pathways to promote the activation of thermogenesis and brown fat. And that's what my initial project over here was on. So we were trying to explore new pathways to promote thermogenesis and see if we could exploit these clinically uh, in models of um, diet-induced obesity in, in, in mice. Thermogenesis kind of for somebody who doesn't know. Like- yes. Yeah, so heat production is exactly what it is. So Brown fat have uh, this protein called UCB1 or uncoupling protein 1, and it's one of a number of very important proteins that drive this process of thermogenesis. So instead of generating ATP in the mitochondria, you, your mitochondria become uncoupled. So your protons don't flow through ATP synthase to generate ATP, they flow through UCP1, and this burns calories really quickly and generates heat as a byproduct, essentially. And how could you kind of manipulate that to combat obesity or obesity-related yeah. diseases? Or is, is that known yet? Yeah, there is some work. So the most effective way of promoting thermogenesis is cold exposure. So if you put a mouse, a human, um, any animal with brown fat in the cold, uh, you activate thermogenesis. So really effective way of burning glucose, burning fat, improves glucose homeostasis, um, and it's very well established, but obviously from a practical standpoint, cold exposure isn't uh, really a, a clinical option. Mm-hmm. So there has been some work using beta-3 adrenergic um, agonists. So one of the ways that cold uh, promotes uh, the activation of thermogenesis is by the production of noradrenaline, which binds to these beta-3 adrenergic uh, receptors, and this promotes the pathway to drive thermogenesis. So there was a generation, an effort to generate agonists to bind to this receptor to promote thermogenesis, but unfortunately, the receptors are also expressed in the heart, so using them ended up having kind of very negative side effects, including dysregulated blood pressure, so they had to be discontinued. So that's why uh, we started looking at other ways we could promote thermogenesis, and we were looking for metabolites that could promote this pathway and we did as comparative screen to identify metabolites that could promote thermogenesis and found that succinate actually is a really potent regulator of thermogenesis so if you just simply put succinate in the drinking water of mice for example uh, this promotes thermogenesis and it's a very effective way of burning calories and decreasing weight gain on a high fat diet god so lucky for you that came succinate came off again just a weird little uh, metabolite that's following me around but no it was a strange coincidence and ed my mentor's phd was also on succinate but in the context of ischemia reperfusion injury so it's uh, near and dear to our hearts for sure and so kind of you know with the experiments that you do with the mice you're talking say you're putting succinate in their drinking water like what other kind of things would you would you do in this project so 
coming here was uh, a real change of pace and a change of scene for me because all of my PhD had been in vitro work. As I mentioned, we, we would work routinely with bone marrow drive macrophages. So I think the first week I was in the lab here, uh, Ed said, okay, we're going to do some tail vein injections of mice. And I was like, oh my gosh, and alone, I have no idea how to do a tail vein injection. I've actually never scruffed a mouse. Like all I've ever done in my PhD was hold a mouse and put it in the CO2 chamber. Like literally that is it. So I was uh, taken off guard, but I just, you know, pretended I knew exactly what I was doing and figured it out in the end. But now 99, maybe even more percent of what I do is animal work. So God, okay. models of diet-induced obesity are something we do routinely. We do a lot of in vivo metabolomics, be it just steady state levels or using um, heavy labeled tracers. So where we can look at the metabolism in vivo. If we inject a mice with say 13 carbon label form of glucose, for example. Um, so we do a lot of metabolite work, a lot of metabolite tracing. We do a lot of um, CLAM. So this is comprehensive lab animal uh, monitoring system so it's basically like doing a seahorse on a whole mouse where you look at their uh, oxygen consumption in vivo uh, so you can inject various compounds or change the temperature um, or manipulate in any way you wish uh, and see how that affects vo2 so oxygen consumption and co2 production and that's an indication of whether there's any changes in energy expenditure indicative of thermogenesis activation so that's something we routinely do um, yeah, then we still have bread and butter techniques that I would have done throughout my PhD, like QPCR and things like that. And we also do a lot of proteomics in our lab as well. So looking at the whole proteome. So there's there's a little bit more omics in-house mm. now. And like, you know, when you're talking about kind of uh, diet-related obesity, how do you do those experiments? What do you feed the mice? What's the kind of so lean yeah. versus obese, you know? So there are many different ways people do this experiments. There are, so we have this standard chow, which is actually a proprietary concoction that no one really knows what it is, but it's a, it's a low fat, uh, high carb, I guess, um, pellet that the animals are fed. And then with the diet induced obesity models, there are various different formulations that people use. Mainly it's 40% or 60% fat, and that will come from lard. Um, I've been doing more of a Western diet to try and mm. make it a little bit more physiologically relevant. So we use a diet that is 40% fat, but it also contains some physiological levels of cholesterol. And we also supplement the water with glucose and fructose. So what they're drinking is almost like drinking a Coke every day. So it's more high sugar and reasonably high fat as opposed to really, really high fat because it seems more and more that the, the sugar load that people are receiving is actually more detrimental or as detrimental as the high fat consumption that's uh, going hand in hand with that. And, you know, in America, I suppose, especially, like, is there a lot of um, funding for this type of research, like obesity research? Because, I, I mean, the obesity epidemic is, is kind of in Ireland as well, but I feel like it's yeah. very, quite uh, prominent in, in America too. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of funding to support this. And so I, I suppose the main funding body here is the NIH. So it, the equivalent, I suppose, of the ERC or SFI, the big agency that people will get large sums of money is the NIH and they support a lot of obesity related research in various contexts, be it things like thermogenesis or cancer, um, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, there is quite a lot of funding going towards that. And how do you find the experience in America? Is it, is it different from Ireland? And, you know, do you miss home? Do you think you'll come back or are you set over there? 
I absolutely miss home every day. I miss the people. I miss Trinity. I miss, yeah, I definitely miss it. I love here though, because just the science is so fast paced. It really suits me and it's, you can't really compete with the equipment, the resources, the funding we have over here. So there's a constant internal battle for me about which is, you know, more important, the science or the fact that Ireland is my home. And I haven't come to the conclusion of that battle yet. I, I actually would say I'm really heartened to see some of the amazing research that's coming out of Ireland now. I feel like we're making progress towards being a, a more competitive scientific country. So hopefully things will continue in that reign because I'd really, really love to return home. But at the moment, I'm committed here for the next little while at least. And, and like, I mean, I'm sure your parents would be delighted if they saw you coming home. <laughs> but what was that like, you know, growing up with two kind of such prominent scientists, both in uh, their own fields and kind of very, uh, I suppose, in later years, intrinsically linked with Trinity? Um, and was there a lot of talk of science over the dinner table? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I remember when I was a kid, I don't know what they were working on, but I think they must have been working on a project together. And they were always talking about aisle one beta over the dinner table. And I remember one day I was just like, please parents, can we stop talking about aisle one beta for one day? And they both just kind of turned and stared at me. I was like, oh God, I think we're doing this too much. Um, so it's my favorite cytokine now. So obviously it had been instilled in my brain from a very young age. But yeah, it's, it's amazing having parents that are in the field, especially when I need um, advice or another opinion that's not so closely related to the work that I'm doing, or especially when I've been writing grants uh, recently in particular, they've been incredibly helpful. I mean, they're so experienced in the process that I, they're really incredibly helpful. But there is always that feeling of especially when I was in Trinity doing my undergraduate or doing my PhD that, you know, my dad was 50 meters away from me and the fear of not living up to their reputations or ever letting them down was always, and I think will ever and ever be in the back of my mind. Not that they would ever put a particular pressure on me, but just that I want to, you know, make them proud. So I'd say 94, 5% it's a really great thing growing up around two scientists and then there's the 5% of that that feeling of you know you, you don't want to ever let them down because yeah they've got great reputations especially in Ireland and I'd like to live up to that. I suppose the only kind of good thing is that at least when you were talking about your PhD and talking about your research, they knew exactly what you were talking about because I'm sure my family at home know the word <laughs> macrophage and that's, that's, that's a you know even something, you know, so um, I think my dad still thinks I'm doing medicine. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's amazing. But I will say, I think it's incredibly important to learn how to relay your research in layman's terms to the broader scientific community. I think that's something that we have a responsibility to do as scientists. And maybe because of being exposed to scientists my whole life, I haven't grasped that as well as others have for sheer need to do it. So yeah, not only my parents, but most of my family have some sort of medical link, be it pharmacy or veterinary or whatever. So they would have a vague idea about, you know, the concepts of metabolism and mm. immunology. But I definitely think that 
being able to relay your scientific interests and your work to in layman's terms is a really important skill for us to have. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I suppose, if I'm also interested, kind of what drives the passion for, you know, science and kind of what do you love most about research? And then I suppose on the flip side, what do you find the most frustrating or the most stressful aspect of being a scientific researcher? Um, I think the excitement to know this is a mundane answer, I guess, but the excitement of, of seeing the result of an experiment you planned, you orchestrated, uh, and you carried out is just something that will never go away for me. Like even developing a, a Western blot or, you know, even when I'm genotyping a mouse, pressing that button to click expose on the machine and waiting for the image to come up, I always get a little rush. So just the excitement of knowing what the answer will be or what, you know, a tiny, tiny step towards the answer will be, will always drive me. Obviously, we're all driven in some way towards hopefully making a difference in some capacity to a human life. And that's obviously a very important aspect. But I don't think that's my innate drive. My innate drive is a curiosity to learn more, to understand more and, and try and make just a tiny piece of the puzzle. Um, so I think, yeah, just sheer curiosity and, and motivation to understand more um, is my main driver. The thing that I find the hardest um, and is kind of a constant moral battle for me is I, I don't love animal work. I, I don't think I ever will. I'm a vegan. I am obsessed with animals. I, uh, yeah, I hate the idea of, of any animal's being harmed but I also understand that it's a, a necessary tool that we have to use and of course human lives to me mean more than a mouse life and if mm. we can learn anything that could end up being useful from a clinical standpoint through our animal work I think it's absolutely essential um, and I guess from my point of view all I can do is know that I treat the animals with absolute respect and they, they don't ever go to waste so that's something that's very challenging for me but I think I have to try and just think about it from a practical point of view and, and power on but still have respect for them and, and treat them the best way I can given the circumstances. Yeah, I never thought of that. Oh, I don't. I do all kind of patient samples. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine working working with animal models. I suppose I might have to in the future. Um, but I suppose my last question for you, which I kind of ask everyone now, is: if you weren't a scientist, uh, what do you think you would have been doing? I presume not veterinary. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, where do you think your life would have ended up? Oh gosh, if I wasn't a scientist, I'd want to work with animals in some way. Veterinary, we know, didn't work out, hmm. but. I would love to do something with conservation. I'm also obsessed with everything environmental. So maybe like um, an environmental activist in the rainforest or something, maybe just a, a tree hugger with a pet elephant or something like that. But then I also am like a sucker for punishment. I like really, I like hard tasks. But yeah, maybe, maybe saving uh, the world from global warming is a pretty hard task. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> something, definitely something to do with animals or the environment. Brilliant. Well, <laughs> this has been great. Uh, thank you so much again for, no for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.